Previously on Soul Searching. Hey, Chris. Hey, John. There's mustard in my hair. Now it is you under my command. Let's get back to back. Use your mic as a weapon. My ankle. Someone new to talk to Oh yeah, alright Well, hey Chris Hey John And hey everybody out there listening We're here for another episode of the Soul Searching Podcast Now normally this is the podcast where we talk about AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul But since that's not on right now We're not talking about that We're actually talking about an adjacent piece of entertainment Something that's set in the same universe, the Breaking Bad universe, uh, and written and directed by Better Call Saul co-creator Vince Gilligan. But this is a movie all about Jesse Pinkman and what happened to him after the end of Breaking Bad. So this is a sort of special bonus podcast on El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, fun stuff. I think a brief update probably is in order because at the end of our last episode of Soul Searching, we did leave you guys sort of at the edge of your seats, I guess, as to what might happen. A listener had infiltrated uh, my basement where we record and had attacked us, and we were doing the best we could in a dangerous situation. The lights had gone out. The power was the power was shut off. We didn't have cell phones. We couldn't call for help. We just had to fight with our bare hands and whatever was around. And um, I'm not sure which one of us, but I think... We hit him, and he went down, and, I mean, Chris, help me out here. Pretty sure he died. Yeah, I mean, he really looked dead, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a bad, bad scene. And he got, he pinched my ankle really hard, so, um, I don't, yeah, I, I lashed out, but I don't know if it was me that got him or, or you, but when we got some, some light on the scene, it, it did not look good. So we skipped town, and uh, honestly— well, uh, what? Skip town is kind of a odd way to put it, but uh, all right, we haven't actually left town. We're still in town, but what we've been doing is we've gone into hiding in town. We've yeah. we've not gone home. We've been wearing the same clothes, um, only washing our socks and underwear when we get a chance. Right, and um, which I'll admit is pretty often, like every couple of days. Yeah, so yeah, it's not that bad. Probably could have bought a lot of new underwear and socks by this time on what we've spent on laundry, but. Uh, we've been in hiding. We've had to wear disguises. I don't know about had to. Well, I mean, it's fun to wear disguises. But the other thing is it kind of it kind of keeps them guessing. Just like our practice, I would say a really clever practice of checking in and out of different hotels within the same day. If anyone's following us, they don't know what the heck we're doing. Like it's really expensive, though. When you check into one and then check out the same day, they still charge you for overnight. Well, that's why I'm hoping we eventually make it out of town and we can sort of start a fresh life somewhere. Um, yeah. But until then, we'll be wearing our disguises. I guess I can tell the listeners because everyone out there is a friend right now, right? Yeah. I mean, our only evil listener is dead now. Right. Chris has been wearing a fake mustache. And because I already have a mustache, I've been wearing sort of a fake chin face area that goes up over my face. Right. I mean, I think they both look pretty realistic. Mm. It's kind of not quite your color, the the whole chin. And you. I mean, a lot of times I've... I, I've I've been hesitant to say anything about this to you because I don't want to, you know, make you feel bad. But you can kind of see your beard coming out around the corners. So I don't I think you should just shave. I mean, the one thing that I do think you might be right about with that is that I did hear some guys saying we were in the we were in a quality inn. And um, I heard one guy say that guy over there looks like he's got a fake face over his beard. 
Yeah, see, that's a pretty good indicator. I wondered if they were talking about me, and and you're kind of making me feel like that's probably the case. Yeah, I don't think there was anybody else there. That's that, not a that, frequent description that you hear, but I think I've heard it about other people before. Mm. Okay. So we're here to podcast about El Camino. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add about this current situation. I know it's not ideal, and it is, as you said, expensive, but it's the best we can do, honestly. Yeah, and hopefully before long we can figure out a good, a more stable place to be, and we can we can get back in in a normal zone for podcasting. But anyway, for, for this one, we can we can do it do it here today. So I guess since we don't really know how much time we have, we should just uh, jump right into this movie. El Camino was uh, written and directed by Vince Gilligan, and it uh, just dropped on Netflix. The development of this project was interesting. Um, it's interesting to take a television show that has had a successful spinoff and then say, we're going to turn it almost into a franchise in the age of, of all these big movie franchises and interconnected movies, um, which some people love and some people don't. I think it's an interesting move to say you can take the Breaking Bad universe and turn it into, well, just that, a universe. You can, you can turn it into right. a franchise. Well, one movie's worth. I don't think that they're going to you know, uh, make a whole bunch of different movies uh, about all the different characters, but it's like doing that even to do this one movie that's like a, a sequel to the show that we already put away for this long and, and, and did a, a prequel to. Does it have to be a, a five or six season show? Can it be a two hour movie or, you know, a miniseries or a four hour yeah. show or whatever that you might say, well, one of these characters that you think didn't quite get their just desserts, maybe there is a story to be told there. I don't think it means he's going to suddenly force all these stories because this movie, El Camino, does feel like a story you could imagine was in Vince Gilligan's head. But the streaming world is opening up possibilities to where anything that you have the idea for, like, oh, let's do uh, three hours worth of a thing, so let's do two short episodes of some, you know, or whatever weird format, or let's do seven 15-minute shorts about the period in between the two shows, you know, or something. You, you could do that because all you got to do is Get Netflix or somebody to agree. And of course, we're on the hook to see this because we are invested in this world and we're curious to see what the next chapter might be. I mean, in many ways, it is a sequel to Breaking Bad, but in more ways, I think it's kind of a uh, a coda, like an epilogue yes. to Breaking Bad. And and I guess that gets into this idea of, of how much this is a movie that stands on its own and how much this is really only going to be of interest to people that, that really liked Breaking Bad. But as far as the rest of it, just the story, the way that it existed as a kind of crime drama, uh, what did you think of uh, El Camino, you know, in, in that sense, as, as a movie? Uh, well, I thought it was well made and good, and I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, specifically with how much I would have enjoyed it without having watched Breaking Bad or without having known the characters and situations already, uh, yeah, it would have been much less good and much less enjoyable. They would have had to uh, set everything up and, and because it's all, it's all based on, on what you already know and who you already care about and think is interesting to watch. So yeah, I guess I would say it's not really a standalone, but if you like Breaking Bad and you're into it, then this is great. I did not read a lot of reviews going into this conversation, um, but I did see a headline where someone said something to the extent of fan service that fires on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I don't know if I really think that fan service as a criticism should really be taken all that seriously, given how much something can be great and also be exactly what fans want. Right. The idea of a fan dictating what creators do seems a little cheap and easy, but the idea of a creator wanting to make something that fans will enjoy somehow does not seem that odd. It's just like, I guess it's like, who's driving that car? Right. I wonder if what people mean when they say fan service is just that there are all these callbacks and there are all these characters that come back. I'd heard that there were at least 10. I think there are more than that. Um, I don't know that I want to sit here and name them all. You can just Google uh, Breaking Bad characters that appeared in El Camino. You'll find several lists, um, and some of them may differ from who's on there, but I saw one that had as many as 15 or 16 references to, to characters and wow. stuff. So, But, but uh, you know, obviously there are the big ones, and there are the ones you kind of expect, and then there are the ones that may surprise you. And I guess we'll try to get to them sequentially as much as we can. But that would be one way that this movie definitely felt like it was, it was for fans, was that there were some scenes that, without the associations we have from the show, they just wouldn't have possibly been able to have dramatic weight. Right, right. When there's fan service and there's fans, like, I feel like... Yeah, fan service as a phrase couldn't be bad if you're trying to make a good thing and the fans all want something stupid and you're going to now make something stupid. But if you've made a good product and your fans like that it's good, then that doesn't mean you're now going to make something stupid. It means you're going to make more of the kind of thing that they want, hopefully. Did you feel like you were cheated of some amount of closure in terms of Jesse Pinkman's character before this movie? Like, before this was announced, um, and maybe there had been stray mentions from Vince Gilligan and other people involved, you know, probably Aaron Paul, uh, when asked, would say, yeah, I would do more if they asked me to do more. And Vince Gilligan would say, oh, you never know when the story is over. But did, did it seem to you that they had left Jesse Pinkman in an appropriate dramatic place where if you never saw him again, that was enough? Did you need more with him? I was okay with where they left it. I did. Uh, I would not say I needed more, uh, but uh, I think that very much gets into: do we need more or do we want more? And a lot of times, it's yeah, it's like they left you with little enough information that certainly you could you could want more. Uh, and uh, once they said, "We're going to tell you." more about the following days, uh, I definitely said, okay, yeah, I want to know what's what's going to happen for him there and how he's going to continue. But uh, yeah, the, the way they left it, I just felt like that was enough information, even though it's almost no information, just to know he got away and had a screaming catharsis. You know, that tells you, all right, he was probably all right in some way or another. So I was okay with it. I, I think that that becomes an overarching um, question in El Camino, which is like, is he worth saving? Do we care about Jesse Pinkman? Does does this sort of scumbag who's been put through hell? Yeah. Does he re- does he deserve redemption almost entirely because he's been put through hell? Um, did we always kind of root for him because he was a kid? Yeah. You know, yeah. There, there's a lot that goes into that, and I think the way that we approach the character of Walter White in this story, which is to say, not that much. You know, he he looms large over it in a way, but he's not a a major topic or a major theme even really it's just maybe maybe his influence on Jesse is a major theme it's not like uh the latest Spider-Man movie where Tom Holland spends half the runtime talking about how Iron Man is dead you know yeah. you don't have Jesse Pinkman talking about Walter White i don't think once right but you know that all of his terrible uh circumstances are just from having been in that world and that Walter was was 
so heavily involved in in all the terrible things that happened. So how did you feel about Jesse Pinkman from the Breaking Bad storyline? Like, did you find Jesse was the real character you cared about and you wanted to see him have a happier ending or anything like that? Did you have that kind of investment in him? Um, I think, like you said, he's a kid. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to root for him. And plus, he's kind of a emotionally vulnerable guy. He seems like a kid where a lot of times, you know, somebody's going to die or have to get killed or something. And a lot of people who have you know gotten to this level of drug dealing would be like yep we got to be ruthless i'm gonna kill him and i'm not gonna think about it i'm gonna hide my feelings jesse's very much like a an eight-year-old who's like oh no this is terrible and i'm gonna stand here and cry and you feel like oh this this poor guy has to watch this and go through this so yeah he to me he was one of the most sympathetic people on the show for sure Uh, especially because you can't really root for uh, Walter White, after he uh, breaks uh, so bad, and uh, so yeah, really was was you know wanting Jesse to be okay. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to see how much that kind of soulfulness of this character that he he's such a feeler does a great job of selling you on this idea that we do want to see Jesse Pinkman get away. We do want to see him at least escape this immediate situation that he's in. Whereas Breaking Bad ended with the possibility that he could be arrested just a mile down the road. You didn't know. It felt like they were deliberately saying, we don't want to tell you more than that. Maybe it kind of weighed on Vince Gilligan that like, yeah. no, I kind of want to make it clear to people that I think Jesse Pinkman got away. Yeah. Not that he could have gotten himself, you know, right back into trouble right. five seconds later. To see him be resourceful and see him sort of pick up that baton of his own story and be the driving force behind his own story is really what this movie gives us the opportunity yeah. to do in a way that I don't think the show ever did or was designed to do. And, um, you know, I do remember hearing some of the people associated with the show say that there was probably more to say about Jesse in the end, but that the story pushed them towards the resolution of Walter White. Right. And that they just didn't have room for it. And so in a weird way, I kind of admire them for not forcing it. Yeah, it would have felt... Yeah, you, you want that everything to come together in one moment, but then, yeah, you don't so much want to put a big epilogue on the show. Uh, I don't know. They could have done, a, you know, five more minutes that let you know uh, he makes it to Alaska or something, but that takes away from the oomph of putting the climax as close to the end as you can. And for dealing with this movie so much like an epilogue to Breaking Bad, it really jumps right into that, what we know Vince Gilligan loves, the nuts and bolts of what the next 48 hours would be like for this guy, you know, yeah, not, yeah. not jumping ahead, not, not saying, well, then he gets the money and he gets out of town. Cause a, a different version of this at movie pacing could have had him getting to Alaska 15 minutes in, right. you know, and some new adventure. And I would have loved to see what sort of new adventure they would do. And maybe they do have the option now of saying, Hey, you know what? Now we can come back in five, 10 years, however many years, mm-hmm. maybe they won't wait that long, but now we've got this character in a place where he can, form new bonds and it can be its own thing. So you don't know if they have plans for this character or if, as seems appropriate to me, this was really just taking the the goodbye that we gave Jesse before and saying, yeah, let's do that again, but with a, a, a much happier outlook. Right. Um, and that seeing this guy who suffered so much, seeing him kind of forge his own path, it, it that is worth making a movie about. Yeah. Even if when you stand way back from it, it may seem like it's a very simple, small stakes a crime thriller uh, with like the bad guys aren't even like serious heavies. They're just kind of low lives. I really liked that, how, how small scale it felt in terms of a story. The movie opens with one of the flashbacks we might have expected. 
I think I knew that Jonathan Banks was in this movie, but I still felt sad all over again to see old Mike <laughs> standing, I guess, on the day of his death by the by the river and, and talking to Jesse and maybe trying to impart one last time. You know, you need to get away from Walter White. You don't need to trust this man. Yeah. It's hard for me to remember where Jesse was in his arc at that point, but I know that Mike was trying to sever ties with Walter White. Um, and it's almost like he's not really stepping in as a father figure, but that scene does make you think about the way that, um, you know, that, that Walter White existed as a sort of a, a lodestar for Jesse in a way. And that now he's just talking to Mike and he's even saying, Mike, where would you go if you could escape? And Mike's the one who puts the idea of going to Alaska in his head. Um, which to me is funny because you can see in that scene that Jesse is just looking for another person. He's, he's sort of cutting ties with Walter White, but he's just looking for another person to tell him what to do and to tell him what's right. And maybe Mike is a better person to listen to than Walter White, but, you know, maybe not that much better. Um, he's still not thinking for himself and making his own choices. That's kind of what I, what I took from that scene. Yeah. Mike has a great line about when Jesse says he wants to put things right. Mike says that's, that's one thing you can never do. Yeah. I like the way the flashbacks work in this movie. That they they all kind of set up what's about to come, or sort of you know show you what you need to know. I mean, I guess that's true of flashbacks always, <laughs> but somehow something about the way that they were constructed uh, and and conceived of and chosen, you know, it just felt uh, really solid and simple and smart. It felt like a clip show. Of clips that we never saw, right? Like all the t- flashbacks you have in in uh, Better Call Saul or, or or any of this universe, you could go back and edit them in order. You could you could stick that into the show, uh, and then make somebody watch it and uh, have to depend on their memory. Oh yeah, I remember when Mike said something about Alaska three years ago. Well, often on Better Call Saul, the flashbacks will be a, a cold open, and therefore, when you get into the episode, the flashback might feel disconnected from the story enough. That you, you'll wonder, was that something Jimmy thought about, or was that just something we got the privilege of seeing? Like, is Jimmy thinking about that? Right. Whereas with these flashbacks, you definitely sense that Jesse is thinking about this moment, that somehow yeah. that he's, and, and maybe even he's in such a fragile state that he's slipping in and out of his memory and, and the present moment um, because of his trauma, you know, because he clearly is kind of confusing where he is, at least initially, there's a lot of confusion on his part about just how to behave in the world now that he's out of that horrible situation. Right, and the flashback informs his thinking about the present. And part of me thought, oh, I don't really want to see these flashbacks to his awful predicament because I kind of wanted to get beyond that world of his torture and everything. But I think by the time the movie was really well and going and I was realizing that those scenes are there to make you feel all over again that feeling of, of his... Just his suffering, just everything he went through to, like I said, right. to earn this spot where we can say, you know what, I do kind of want Jesse Pinkman to have a better end uh, than that. Kind of like they did on Better Call Saul, frankly, of within a few episodes showing us Jimmy, the sort of endearing striver, um, and make you go, oh yeah, this won't be the story of cynical asshole Saul Goodman. This might be the story of how someone becomes that. But it's not like they're stranding you with a character that you already think is is sort of hard to root for. Yeah. And I guess you're right. Jesse was the sort of obvious rootable interest on Breaking Bad. I just saw him as kind of making enough dumb decisions and thinking, acting without thinking often enough that he, to me, felt like another agent of chaos in this awful situation. That if Walt ever had a good idea, somehow Jesse might fuck it up. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, but definitely you're right. As that story wore on and, and anyone who didn't know that Walt was a villain 
uh, could no longer deny it. Jesse's sort of disagreements with Walt put him um, on a slightly more sympathetic side. Like he's the, the one guy who seems to be reacting emotionally to some of those awful things that happen, like like the killing of the kid right. uh, late in the series run, which ties us in with Todd, who we're going to talk about a lot. If you watched any of the compilations of clips, the previously ons or the recaps or the even Aaron Paul on Jimmy Kimmel talking about Breaking Bad in, in like five minutes, he runs down the whole show. Yeah. There was a lot on my mind about, man, all the shit that uh, uh, poor Jesse Pinkman has been through. <laughs> If they had tried to sell us a more compassionate Walter White in this movie, I would have kind of rolled my eyes at it. I have to admit, I kind of admire how fully they did not. If Walt exists in this movie at all, he's like a he's like a father figure, but he's like one of those good riddance father figures that you recognize someone might say, they taught me how to do this. They, they, they gave me this useful life lesson, mm-hmm. but I don't miss them in my life. Right. I can't long for that camaraderie right. because it was always so one-sided. Yeah. So after the um, scene with Mike, it just kind of jumps into the moment where Jesse is driving through the desert and he has to think quickly to avoid the cops. But he does the most logical thing. He goes to a friend's house. And aren't we glad it's the friends that we know and love? It's uh, Skinny Pete and Badger, two, two other returning characters that I think we have a lot of warmth for. For whatever reason, these are yet again some lowlifes uh, that we recognize as people who face challenges. And even though they've done some dumb things they've mostly harmed themselves um and they are good friends to jesse and particularly skinny pete i thought had a real like a hero moment or two in this story as far as how he talks to jesse and helps him and if one of the things we think we're going to miss with no walter white is those kind of walter white moments of a character having an idea and saying here's what we need to do you know yeah yeah uh skinny pete gets one of the walter white moments this episode he comes up with the plan that really works as far as dispersing the cars Right. It felt like it was setting up a storyline where real trouble was going to come for Skinny Pete or that something bad might happen to Badger, but they're not, you know, this isn't their story. So we don't know how the day went for them. Um, But it implies that Skinny Pete kind of saved the day in a way. I loved that. Right. It seemed to work out great. And I never had particular lot of love for them on Breaking Bad, but I, I, I loved them a lot in this, or I don't remember having a strong emotional investment, but, but they were, they were both so worried and caring, you know, uh, that you can't help but be like, yeah, friends, man, they're great. And then, uh, yeah, Skinny Pete says, what does he say? You're you're my hero. When Jesse says, why'd you do this for me? Yeah. Incredulous that somebody would do it. Like, he actually says, like, duh. Right. You're my hero. But um, also it leaves us, yeah, Badger drives off and we never see uh, uh, what happens to him on his adventure to take the car down to the Mexican border. And I thought, that's your next Breaking Bad movie. Badger's story of taking the car down to the border. What happened? But they just left us hanging? I, we need to know. Jesse's there. He's barely had time to uh, uh, shit, shave, and shower. But he has had time to at least do two of those things, we know. He's back to looking like Jesse Pinkman, which Pete didn't think was a good idea, for obvious reasons, that he thought maybe he could evade detection a little bit more if they don't know what he looks like. But I think Jesse Pinkman needed to get rid of the face that to him is the face of suffering, the face uh, that went through this ordeal. Yeah. You know, he's not in the El Camino that long. The movie could have been called Fiero. Yeah. Because uh, he ends up driving off in in Badger's Fiero because the reasoning is no one's going to look for a badass in a in a Fiero or a tough guy in a Fiero, which it was, you know, an insult to Badger, who's who, who's proud of his car. But what Badger ends up doing is driving Skinny Pete's car to the border, where it will be abandoned. And I guess if they discover it, they will think that Jesse Pinkman left 
in that car and went to Mexico. Right. And Jesse's intention is not to go to Mexico at all. And Skinny um, Pete plans to tell the cops uh, that he, he took the car. So it's going to be a very clear line. So Jesse is now on the road. And before we jump into the next part of the story, I did want to mention this one thing that I, I, I wonder if you caught this. Uh, it's not just characters that are, are popping up as Easter eggs in this. It's also locations. Did you catch that they showed the place where Los Pollos Hermanos used to be? And they showed the place where Saul Goodman's office used to be? Oh, no. They showed a quick shot of the shopping center, but no no Statue of Liberty out front. Uh-huh. Um, and they showed a, a, a restaurant called Twisters, which is in the location, the building that Los Pollos Hermanos oh. was in. I totally missed it. And I, I looked that up just to be sure. And it turns out that the real location they used was a place called Twisters, like a regional chain called oh, Twisters. That oh. they, they used either an old Twisters or a currently working Twisters as Los Poyos Hermanos, or the, maybe even just the exterior mm-hmm. of Los Poyos Hermanos, that familiar one. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really lovely and kind of poignant way to show the passage of time. It's like, not only is Gus Fring dead, but like his empire, so to speak, is not even... There's not even a, a remnant right. in the world of Gus Fring's empire. I thought that was, like, a, 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 in one shot, a way to do what this movie spends a couple of hours doing sort of more slowly for Jesse as a person, which is showing how much he's got to get away, that there's nothing left here for him. It kind of is telling us as viewers, though, there's not a whole lot left here for you either. Right. Um, were you happy to see Todd? And how how do you think they handled bringing him back as a... You know, a true psychopath <laughs> that that we, we saw plenty of that in his appearance on Breaking Bad. But there, it did seem like Vince Gilligan was having fun sort of piling on the creepazoid moments with, with Todd. Yeah, that was well done. He just was a good uh, uh, creepazoid is a good word. I don't know if you just coined that. Uh, uh, but I, I enjoyed his, his performance. I mean, that actor has a- aged visibly since... Breaking Bad. So you just had to imagine, okay, let's imagine that in that interim, maybe this guy wasn't taking care of himself, and then he started doing it again or something. <laughs> right. Let's just say he's had a, f- a bad few nights uh, uh, killing his, his cleaning lady. You know, that's really dark, the fact that he killed his cleaning lady. But the retrieving the belt off of her neck was and, and, and immediately putting it on was, was a good uh, kind of psycho moment for him. That is a great example of the way his brain works, which is like both kind of like a child's brain, but also a really self-serving reptilian <laughs> killer. Yeah. But the way that he was like, oh, oh, you know what? Gonna need this. I forgot something. And then he gets the belt and puts it on and then immediately puts it on like that. I'm going to need, yeah, I'm going to need this, but I'm going to need it to hold my pants up. <laughs> right. Not like I'm going to need it because it's evidence. Maybe he was right. thinking the, that way, but you don't know how much he was thinking that way. But even yeah. outside of murdering someone, his, his uh, kind of banal, soulless version of evil. I mean, he actually chats about the weather with Jesse when Jesse's in the cage. Like, Jesse has to make small talk with yeah. this this maniac, you know? Right. Uh, and, and continue kind of a, a performance of being his friend. Yeah. And you don't really know how much Todd really feels that Jesse's his friend or whether this is some kind of mind game or even if there's a difference. But he does weird shit. Like, he smooths Jesse's hair with his spit yeah. at one point, which is both, like, weirdly... Uh, paternal and maybe even kind of romantic in a way like his feelings towards jesse are very unclear whether he kind of admires him or pities him um but i think all that stuff is very 
unsettling, especially when we've seen the kind of flip of that with the way that Badger and Skinny Pete behaved as true friends. Here's Todd kind of acting like his friend and doing that thing that a person does where they kind of, they gaslight you and they groom you and they make you feel like they're on your side. And again, I look at someone like Todd and I wonder how conscious is he that that's even what he's doing? Like how... How, how, what are the wheels turning in his head like? Right. Well, it's, it's a relationship is very much like a, a slave and master relationship where how weird that is to, you know, picture if it's 1850 or something, how many of these people who owned other human beings probably, you know, part of the time were treating them like a, like a child and part of the time treating them like a friend and then a lot of the time forcing them to work 20 hours a day, you know, and beating them. Uh, but all at once, because in their mind, it's a, just a weird blur of how you deal with this other person who you think is not a person. It's, it's a lot like that with Todd. Like, I'm going to make some normal small talk with you and then fix your hair in case anybody sees it, but also just kind of like I'm being a pal and then make you help me dispose of a body. But we also find out that uh, Todd has uh, uh, a fantastic taste in music. Don't know if we knew that before, but uh, what was the? There's a couple of yacht rock songs that were just so great, uh, and the first one I didn't think much about. They're driving on the way there, and I said oh, that's a nice song to put in the background. And then he sings along to uh, uh, "Sharing the Night Together," and that really was. Uh, just one of my favorite <laughs> moments in the movie because I like that kind of music so much. I couldn't help but be like, this is wonderful. No, it was a great little moment and it was very funny, but it's very dark as well because totally. Todd is having this, again, this disconnect. He's he's driving down the road and enjoying the beautiful sunlit day and, uh, you know, doing the little uh, hand surfing out the window of right. the car kind of thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesse is curled up with a body and he looks like the adjacent emotionally dead person well yeah it's creepy but it also is funny in the sense that that song is one of those i mean it's a song called the sharing the night together by dr hook it's groovy it's got that 70s feel to it there's a little free love thing going on but it's also one of those love songs where when you look at the lyrics especially if you think of it from the point of view of someone like todd there is this weird kind of oh it's in that vein of a slightly less fashionable kind of song nowadays anyway where the guy's kind of saying you look lonely um why don't you make it with me tonight baby kind of (laughs) of songs you know and he's doing a little bit of like a i guess what i'm saying is let's share the night together feels to me very euphemistic for a guy who's basically saying let's go screw you know yeah um so it's got that sleazy quality that a lot of those uh am radio hits of the 70s have when you really when you really listen to what the the kind of lover man uh, persona that the singer is adopting is. But I'm not saying that's necessarily there in the lyrics. I'm just saying that when you put it in the mouth of a, of a, of a stone cold killer like Todd, it, you can, you can think about those sort of predatory aspects of, of that, that, that type of lyric, that type of song. It's a heavy come on. Right. It is, but you're right. It's lovely and it's, it's, it's funny. And it, it, it's cutting to Jesse rolling around in the back or trying not to, uh, roll against the corpse in the, in the rolled up carpet. Right. I mean, it's hilarious, okay. but also so dark and so awful that you just think that this is just a fraction of what he went through. You know, when he yeah. was being held by by Uncle Jack and and the biker gang. Right. Well, another thing that happens in this stretch of the story is we do get absolute final confirmation that Walter White is dead. I know you felt like this was confirmed already, and I agreed that he was dead, but I knew that there was a a, a thread in the fandom that wanted to say. 
we didn't see him die. We didn't see them pronounce him dead. And so there were people wondering if there was some story thread that Walter White could be out there. And I think the show uh, or the movie did a great job of of just throwing it out there. I mean, not a big deal, but a moment where it's like, no, we refer to him as dead. His name and the word dead followed it uh, on a news announcement, you know, so. Uh, right. That was enough. But also in that same little blurb, I think you get a little bit about Lydia. They, they refer to a woman who's been poisoned and is not expected to live. Mm-hmm. And that she was somehow involved with uh, Walter White. Right. So we find, okay, yes, we didn't know for sure what happened with the the ricin and the stevia packet or whatever that was that Walt pulled on her at the end of Breaking Bad. But now we at least know that she, yes, was poisoned and, and is probably dead. But they didn't kill her. She, unlike Walt, has the little thread of a, could Lydia return in this world? Yes, she could. But Walter White is definitely dead. Did, did you feel that moment at all? Or did you only feel it because you knew that I was saying... We don't know for sure until they say for sure. Uh, yeah, I think I just felt it in, in terms of those people who hang on to things like, maybe he's alive. And I was like, okay, there you go, you people. I would have been very disappointed if Walter White had come around the corner at some point. Right. So another thing that kind of returns in this, we see Jesse's parents for a moment, um, and they are urging him to turn himself in. And it's hard to know what Jesse would be thinking about this at this point. His relationship with his parents was always fraught, and it was always presented in a way that maybe they were distant, and maybe they favored his his brother Jake, mm-hmm. and maybe they were kind of cold to him and, and could have been more supportive. But you also recognize that what he had probably put them through, that if you had an adult son like Jesse Pinkman, you might feel like you didn't want to take responsibility for his choices uh, beyond a certain point. So I've always felt for Jesse's parents, even if they did seem like they weren't doing the best job you could do of helping someone through their issues. But it, I never got that complete of a picture. Did you have any feelings one way or the other, as far as thinking like, these are good people, these are bad people. They just kind of seem like normal people, right? Yeah. It didn't give me that strong of impression. And I also did not, uh, you know, it's been so long since Breaking Bad that I barely remembered them from the show or what his relationship was like with them. But now that you say that their uh, relationship was fraught and that maybe they favored his brother, putting that together with the fact that the combination to the safe where he found the guns was his brother's birthday, uh, that says a lot. Right. And the fact that he kind of rolled his eyes, it's almost like a a, a laugh. Yeah, it's like, oh, of course. And then, yes, it, it worked. Yeah, they, they weren't a big part of the show, but when they did pop up, it was always antagonistic, and it was always when Jesse was in his usual mode of not really being able to do anything quite right. So you felt for the parents, but you also saw how they were sort of, they were at that point where they had cut him off, kind of, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, as a parent, I have to say that's really hard to empathize with, but there was one little detail in this later on when he when he kind of goads them to leave the house so that he can go in. When he came in and the water was running, I, I thought, is that meant to be a little visual cue that when they heard him on the phone, they did get so distracted out of concern that they didn't turn the water all the way off, that mm-hmm. that was maybe a little touching, a little sliver of, of indication that they care enough about Jesse that when they heard from him, they stopped what they were doing and they didn't. Right. They kind of forgot themselves. Right. But I didn't, I didn't know if I was really reading into that with, with that. I think that's all it is. But yeah, so then it turns out he he had this kind of nice moment on the phone with them, but what he was doing was drawing them out so that he could uh, break into their house and steal from them. So where is their relationship? It kind of makes you feel like of all the things he might care about, his relationship with his parents is not not particularly important to him. Right. And then we see this montage, or at least that's mixed in with that moment where he is tearing the apartment apart. He's, he, he knows that Todd keeps his money in the encyclopedias, and then there it's not there. 
And then he remembers that Todd had said, there's another place I could hide them. That is right around here. But it would be an engineering feat. It would take a little engineering and right. no one would ever find it, but it would be right here. Yeah. And I did wonder, like, as easily as that connected to Jesse's goal in the next chunk of story, I did wonder, was that fair play from a storytelling standpoint to flash back and insert a memory that we didn't have from the past that now becomes of the utmost importance to Jesse in the current moment? Did that feel at all? Yeah. Uh, like cheap to you or did it seem like it fit in really nicely because what we got was one of those classic Vince Gilligan uh, montages where somebody rips something apart or takes something apart. Right. It didn't bother me. I think that, yeah, it's convenient and uh, it's a wonderful coincidence, but certain, you know, in making movies and TV, there's a certain amount of convenient coincidences that just have to happen uh, to, to make things add up and, and, to give us enough fun, and so I certainly didn't mind that, oh, he remembers that he said that, and that's the reason he came here. You know, that's the reason he came here. It's not like he came here first and then remembered it or something. So, uh, it's just, but yeah, you needed a way for him to all of a sudden have enough money, uh, and uh, that's kind of one of the only things I could think of to do it, is that he knows some gangster hid some money somewhere, and he knows where to look for it. But yeah, the the methodically pulling the place apart was uh, 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 fun. Uh, but it reminded me so much of uh, uh, Mike uh, uh, pulling apart the car in Better Call Saul, and maybe we've seen one or two other things that remind me of that in in this uh, saga. So I kind of was was over it as soon as it began. I was like, yeah, we're doing one of these. I think I would agree with that if not for that really show-offy aerial shot where it looks like you're looking down at a dollhouse and Jesse is in every room doing right. that. And it was such motion. a cool shot because it was so dark and there was like blackness with with colors emerging from the blackness. I mean, it was just a really cool visual. It's yeah. just something I have not seen before. It did look cool. And I just started thinking about the mechanics behind it. And I have to say, I don't necessarily love show-offy stuff. Yeah. But every now and then I admire the visual ingenuity of of designing a shot like that that's like wow they really had to have that idea and commit to it and it really sells that jesse is is leaving no stone unturned which to me again yes it feels very mike it feels very walter white to say here's a person who's literally going to take apart everything in this apartment you know every possibility of a hiding place and chuck tearing up his house at the end of season three of better call Saul. Um, there was one little moment in that that I thought was so silly, and I don't even know why it's there, but, you know, it's not even, it's not a plot hole or anything major, but when Jesse finds the flashlight, he's using a Bic lighter to, to light his way, and then he finds a flashlight, and he turns and he blows out the Bic lighter. You don't have to do that. You can just release the, your thumb. Mm -hmm. Right. That was only for the visuals. There's no reason why you would have to blow out a light. I mean, it's actually more convenient just to release your finger uh, and a lighter will go out. Um, but again, I'm not I'm not being such a yeah. nitpicker that I would say that's a problem. But that was something right. that, that took, you know, it bumped me a tiny bit. I was like, well, that was for the camera. And that, that wasn't reality. Um, right. But I do feel like someone would do that sometimes. And so, yeah. But that is an odd little, little thing to throw in. We don't want to skip... Um, the other cameo that comes in this moment, which is the recurring character of the tarantula that Todd took in as a pet after they shot the little kid on Breaking Bad, oh. uh, that the kid had the tarantula in a jar with him, and then Todd took that and and you know took it in. Okay, and that was there. I forgot. So that yes, that's one of the uh, 
10 plus characters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. uh, it's great that that tarantula was still uh, alive and available. Uh, uh, otherwise, they would have had to, uh, uh, you know, get some other tarantula or change the storyline. Then the guys show up, the cops, in quotes, show up, and they have a pretty funny interaction with Lou, the neighbor, who I, I should have mentioned him before. He's been a, a, a runner in this episode, both with Todd and with Jesse, just that there's this old guy who lives next door to Todd who is out watering the plants and, and just kind of putting his nose in. And while watching this, I, I thought to myself, if this was 24, Lou, the neighbor, would be dead, you know, just for getting mm-hmm. in the middle of this situation. But in this world, it creates this great tension of, is he going to... It's like a Tarantino-esque almost kind of tension to say, is this loudmouth going to get himself killed or is he going to, you know, are the angels watching over him today? Right. Um, how interested is anyone in this scenario in in opening fire and creating a whole different situation? Right. But I feel like we caught that these guys weren't cops just from their bearing and their demeanor, just something kind of clued us in. And then when he, uh, uh, Jesse catches the one guy unawares and says, I'm not a cop killer, which I thought was just a great line. Mm-hmm. He's got the gun on the guy. So Jesse believes they're cops. But when he says, uh, call your friend in here, and the cop and the guy who might be a cop says, which his name is Casey. Uh, let's say these two guys are Neil and Casey. Mm-hmm. Neil's the kind of big guy, and Casey is the the, the redheaded guy with the mustache. Uh, Jesse gets the drop on Casey, and, and, and to call Neil in, Casey says, hey, Lieutenant, which you can tell the way that Neil reacts to that. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I know something's up. But I still, at this point, thought they were cops. They had me going, and I just thought, well, the guy can tell either from the tone of his voice or maybe he's a sergeant, and he called him Lieutenant, you know, that, that somehow that worked as a signal, even though they were cops to, to me. So it was a minute or two later when, when you know— I, I fell for it. Jesse's tip-off was that the guy used uh, a cord to tie him up. Right, didn't have any handcuffs, yes. So that's And that was the absolute visual confirm that these are not cops. But what I had open in my mind was, well, maybe these are crooked cops. Yeah. But I thought that scene was was pretty interesting, and it really did hinge on the fact that the guy really did not want to have to kill Jesse. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now know that he remembers Jesse and saw when Jesse was being tortured but at that point we don't have that information we don't know what he saw Uh, that moment when uh when jesse has kind of finagled his uh, escape with money you understand now that the guy might have had this level of guilt that allowed him to see that happen whereas before you might have thought well this is far-fetched why would this guy let jesse go um but you kind of think now he was thinking i'm somewhat morally culpable for this poor guy's predicament right and uh and I, I don't want to mention that. Yeah. But then when Jesse recognizes him from the logo, from the candy welding, I thought that guy's line was so creepy in the way he said it when he said, I was wondering when you were going to recognize me. Yeah. That is such a creepy line. And I was wondering, is it creepier than the other creepiest line, which was um, when, when Jesse compliments the pastels in Todd's apartment and Todd says, I was thinking of Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> that was weird. Like, I wanted to look like Easter eggs in, in my bachelor pad what kind of grown man says like with (laughs) with a little with a little smile to another grown man yeah i was thinking of easter eggs (laughs) before we get too far past um lou from unit 11 i just wanted to say that he was uh funny and good in in how infuriatingly slow talking he was and uh uh, as far as getting the information out and you know that we're about to have some action adventure, but this guy just is talking, and can we please get rid of him? 
And it's really, it's such a Vince Gilligan thing to be like, oh, then the boring thing happens that you have to wait through. And that makes it so much more realistic, uh, his his stuff, where anytime, you know, in, in most any movie, if somebody gets shot, maybe you say, okay, they don't go to the hospital yet because we're still doing action adventure. We'll just let them be all right. You know, and his thing, he would say, well, he has to go to the hospital, and then we have to wait, and the other characters have to wait in the waiting room, and there's only one magazine, and it's horrible. That that makes it so much more real to put in these awful pieces of waiting. And waiting for Lou to leave is, is one of those in this, and then there's there's more of it later where it's like, let's put some waiting in the movie. Well, the character actor uh, who plays Casey, the redheaded, mustachioed guy, mm-hmm. he has a great moment when they cut to him in Lou's apartment. I mean, this is right out of just a f- straight comedy where um, Neil is saying, I need you to buy us about five minutes of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right on that, Lou says something about the tea. And he even says, I don't think that's going to be a problem, meaning like, I think I could right. probably, this guy would keep me here forever. And that is actually right. the most intimidating and somewhat bullying thing that Lou does is when he thinks he's talking to a cop. And, and he's saying, I've got some evidence that I want to show you. Or uh, there was a note slipped under my door that by, by Todd. He thinks they're looking for evidence to do with yeah. Todd. I mean, it's so complicated. We don't need to get into those little little details that much. But he wants to have uh, Casey come over, not knowing he's not a real cop, and look at some evidence. And it's easier for Casey to continue the, the impersonation of a cop than it is for him to cause trouble with Lou at that right. moment. Uh, and as he's saying, well, you know, we're busy with this investigation, <laughs> Lou says, oh, don't worry, I have time, as he's walking away. Yeah. It's, it's, it suggests they're going to really keep you, that they're not in a rush. And so it's going to be totally on you to define the way in which you get out of that situation. Right. And that moment with Lou gives Casey a moment of humanity, because we've been that person. We've been at the house of like an elderly neighbor or an elderly relative or something where time means something completely different to them <laughs> than it does to us. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and he says something like, ever since I got this Brita pill pitcher, the tea is so much better. Or something. That's just the, the, the perfect uh, caricature of, I don't care how long I'm talking to you right now. Uh, we're we're going to be here for quite some time. Well, I mean, and you both are annoyed by Lou, but also don't want to see anything bad happen to him. And so there is the possibility that this guy's going to say, this isn't worth the trouble and just do a headshot on him. And he's going to, but so it's like, there is that tension, but it is somewhat diffused. You do sort of get the idea that Neil and Casey are not like, right. they're not hard, they're not like that. bad guys. Yeah. Right. They're not trying to get involved in a murder if they can avoid it. Right. The next thing Jesse really does is seek out the escape. He's got the money now. We now see in true Vince Gilligan fashion what he was doing this whole time. The, the memories about Todd, the present day stuff in the apartment, all of that was to get money so that he could go to the disappearer, Ed, at the vacuum store. Right. Which brings us to a sad bit of business here because Robert Forster passed away, I guess, the day this movie came out, or at least that's when it was made public that he had passed away. Right. It's crazy. Was was uh, on the same day this came out. I've always really loved Robert Forster. Um, when I was a kid, I loved The Black Hole, and he's good in that. Or he's he kind of is called upon to do a reliable kind of leading man turn in right. that, you know, and, and he's good at it. In recent years, I, like many people, loved him in Jackie Brown. Of course. Um, I also thought he was one of the best parts of the uh, very good Return to Twin Peaks that came out a couple years ago on Showtime. He played a stand-in for a... Um, a character who did not return because the actor had retired for either health reasons or just life reasons. Mm-hmm. So he had a, he got to stand in 
and kind of be like what he does well, that Robert Forster quality of being a tough guy, but having a lot of warmth and a lot of compassion that just oozes out of his every line reading and at, like talking at a pace that feels like the opposite of what you were just saying about Lou, the, the nosy neighbor of Todd. Here's a guy who has his own pace and, and it draws you in. Yeah. It doesn't make you feel like time is stretching out. It makes you feel like like there's something being said here right. and uh, perfect casting. Definitely. He was great in Jackie Brown. I don't think I ever was particularly aware of him before that. Uh, I'm sure I saw a black hole as a kid and he, he didn't, you know, stick in my mind, uh, cause I was too small. And, uh, uh, you know, I thought, Oh wow, this guy is a skilled guy. And, uh, like, like any time a celebrity, dies, celebrity dies, you have that pang of like, Oh, that's too bad, man. Another good one gone, but how weird it was the main thing that that uh, he died right as this was coming out. I had it in my head that he had died. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know when it had happened, but I thought about this movie, and when they were talking about characters that could return, I I had had the thought, oh, it's too bad they can't have Ed at the vacuum store return because Robert Forster died. Mm. Because that character would be a natural to be a, a part of the plot. And it would actually be a way to connect Jesse to Jimmy McGill slash Saul. It connects him to what Walt did before he came back to save Jesse. Right, but you were just wrong. But I will say for me, until Robert Forster showed up, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be under new management. We're not going to see Robert Forster because, you know, Ed, the actor, is dead. So the character has to be dead. And then there was a shot of the little old lady looking at uh, a vacuum cleaner with him. And you heard his voice off camera. And I was like, man, they found someone who sounds exactly like Robert Forster. <laughs> you were convinced, Robert Forster. I just thought good. he was dead. I mean, honestly, it would be like right now if, if you found out that... Um, Tony Randall was going to headline a new NBC sitcom. You right. would go like, oh, I'm sure he died, right? Yeah. <laughs> then he shows up on screen, and I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Not only is this great to see this character, yeah. but Robert Forster is great, and I love him. And I'm so glad he's still alive to be in this movie. And then, like, a few hours later, I was looking at Twitter, and I noticed that people were really singling out Robert Forster's performance in this and saying, oh, his, his turn was so great and so warm. He was great. But so I was thinking about that and noticing people were talking about other Robert Forster performances. And I was like, wow, people are really happy about Robert Forster and want to say, oh, if you know him from Jackie Brown and from Breaking Bad, you've got to check out these other things. And then I finally saw the one that said he was a, a great man. Uh -huh. And so I realized that I spent a few months needlessly being sort of low level sad that Robert Forster was dead because he wasn't. Yeah. And then I got to only experience about 12 hours of being glad he was alive before he was dead. So I'm not saying that makes it about me. I'm just saying for me, it was a very strange thing to be like, oh, he's dead. No, he's alive. Wow, great. Robert Forster. Woohoo. Oh, no, he's dead. Okay. <laughs> that was a real roller coaster. I'm glad that he was able to do this scene because he, he brought so much to this film, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. But what a jerk for uh, uh, demanding that last $1,800. I guess his principles are just so strong. He had to stand on that. But gee whiz. Out of $125,000, you can't give a guy a, what is that, a 1% discount or something? He says, um, you make your luck, as did your partner, as did your lawyer, which is the one reference to Saul and one of the few references to Walter White that a character is talking to Jesse and brings yeah. him up. Um, but I think that if you believe that's his point of view, then you can see why he would demand that thing. Yeah, that his line in the sand is, I have a way of doing it. It's not about helping somebody. It's about making my money. They've got to reach my standard of 
whatever the protocol is. I've got to have, I mean, obviously what my rules and also what he does for them. It seems like it costs money on his part. So I would imagine the money to buy that car that was waiting for Jesse, the money for all the documents. I'm sure that that's part of what it is. And he just knows if I go below this, then people will hear that Ed's cutting prices or that Ed is, is sympathetic or will listen to a sob story or whatever. But I do agree that like there's room in your belief about that character of Ed to think that he would take pity in on Jesse. Right. I think that's what it's designed to do is to show you nobody is nobody's taking pity on him particularly. No one's saying, "Well, I'll help you, Jesse. I'll I'll, I'll bend I'll bend my rules for you except for maybe, you know, Skinny Pete and Badger. They're true friends, but everyone else he encounters It's a hard world. It's is very hardened to him, yes. But let's talk about Marla Gibbs. I said the little old lady and you're right. I should have lingered on the fact that that was Marla Gibbs. That was Marla Gibbs and it's really nice to see her. But I felt bad that she, because I was like, is that Marla Gibbs? And then she, she left the scene without having, without having had any kind of uh, quick comeback or snappy gotcha or any juicy lines. And I said, man, that was Marla Gibbs, and she was totally underused. That was, that was a jip. I'm mad. Don't you think that that's just something that now connects this to the 227 universe? <laughs> this is the same universe. No, I don't I don't think it is. Is it? No. But then she's gone and then uh we have the whole uh uh discussion between uh Jesse and Ed and uh which culminates in that one another one of the funniest moments of the thing is when Jesse so totally calls Ed's bluff. That was not a real phone call for this reason, this reason, and this reason. Uh, but it totally was a phone, a real phone call. Yes, it's proof that you can be great and wrong at the same time. Like his speech <laughs> right. was great. <laughs> yeah, and Aaron Paul delivered the hell out of that speech, you know. Right, and it's so convincing. But you kind of felt that it was wrong. You kind of felt, yeah. well, we we don't really get moments of triumph for Jesse that involve a lot of strutting and crowing. Like <laughs> right. That. Yeah, you kind of feel, I'm pretty sure this might not work out for him. But it was great to see him have that moment. I mean, I was like, man, this is a great moment. And yes, (laughs) quite wrong. And um, I was just glad that he left with the money instead of leaving it behind or the cops getting it. So I was afraid that it was going to go worse for him than that. And even Ed was careful to say, you know, take your money. Right. But I I liked the way when he interacted with the cops that he gave him some line of bull about who the guy was. And he referred to him having tattoos. And he said one of them was interesting, a large insect. <laughs> right. He made up this crazy story that the guy was six foot seven and has an insect over his eyebrow. And to pour on such a crazy picture of a guy that would definitely steer them away from Jesse if they saw Jesse. Right. And hopefully not some guy who fit that description uh, who was just <laughs> happened to be walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a hilarious follow-up shot, them arresting the guy. <laughs> Well, after that, from a plot standpoint, the next thing he does is go to his parents' house. We talked a lot about that relationship. I will say that him saying to them on the phone that he did not consider them to be responsible for his fate, I do think was supposed to be a a big moment for them. Yeah. But also, it's undercut by the fact that he's he's saying all that to get them out of the house so that he can steal from them. So I think for them, that moment plays as a feeling that they might be proud of him, and then instantly not proud of him because— they will find that he tricked him and come home to find that he broke in. You know, so it's like that relationship seems pretty severed. Um, and again, kind of sad, but we already covered that. Did you want to add anything to the issue of his parents and just what was going on with that part of the story? I would just say that, yeah, that that was a nice idea that he would say, none of this is your fault. Uh, and that could have been a big moment for them. 
but to me, you know, neither one of them was quite crying or anything. So to me, it did feel very much like they were thinking, uh, yeah, we know this is not our fault. This was all you. <laughs> right, um, but hearing I, him say that would make them think he's not like if you were that guy's parent, you would say, oh, it's kind of good to hear him not blaming the world. Right. At least he admitted it now. So that's nice. But it's not that that we've been sitting here the whole time thinking, oh, God, what did we do wrong? And I guess those were the cops that were tailing them, right? That's what we're supposed to take from that. Is that yeah. The cops are ready to pounce on, right. on Jesse, whether they know it or not. Right. The cops are ready to follow them wherever they go. Right. So I guess the next thing is him going to Candy Welding. And and it's that scene where he seems like he's about to get the drop on Neil, but then a car pulls up and he's able to duck back into the darkness, which I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, scene that was a, a cool moment where he's like, oh, sneaking up on the guy. And then he sees the headlights coming down the, the, the alley yeah. and he's like, oop, backs up. Um, and we know he has one of the guns with him. We see him kind of looking at the two sort of puny offerings that are in his parents' safe. And uh, we know he's got one, yeah. but we don't know about the other hidden gun, which I, I thought that was really cool that that turned out to be a good bit of thinking. That was kind of another Walter White moment of outthinking the situation that you're about to put yourself in. Yeah, kind of but true. at that moment, we don't really know for sure what he's doing. Man, I guess it seems obvious that he might be there to get some money, but we don't know what he's going to plan on doing. Um, and then another cameo, except this time it's a Better Call Saul character, not a Breaking Bad character. It's Man Mountain, who has been around. He was one of the people that um, nearly got hired when Mike was waiting for the, the pharmaceuticals guy. Okay, I didn't recognize him as the same guy. So yeah, that was him. And bringing in some escorts, which I, I guess we can stop for just a second and say, does this highlight a problem? Um, and is it a problem that this is a very male-dominated movie, uh, even more so than Breaking Bad, the show, was? That this is... Like, is is it is it a... <laughs> Is it an oversight that there are no strong female characters in this or no real female characters to speak of at all, uh, uh, except for, you know, a cameo by Jane in, uh, in a flashback and a little bit with Jesse's mom that we see escorts? And, of course, it's not like they're characters either. They kind of come in um, for the party. But is that like, is that a little sexist or is that just this movie is commenting on and dealing with, you know, toxic masculinity? And so by, by that standard the characters are going to be male, largely. Like, did you notice that sort of absence? Whereas, say, on Better Call Saul, we've got Kim, who's a great, fully rounded character that you can really root for. Yeah, I feel like in some movies, you know, I will be watching and say, oh boy, they did a poor job of balancing the genders in this movie. There's barely any good women roles. Um, But uh, for some reason, it did not really even occur to me while watching this, maybe just because I know the characters or something, but uh, yeah, you're right. That's something to, to to think about and deal with, and for whatever reason, they didn't make a special effort. But I don't know that, you know, th- I wouldn't be the one to call them out on it and say, you need to make that effort on every movie you make. If you're uh, Vince Gilligan, do you as an individual have a responsibility to make sure that all of your movies are balanced well? Maybe maybe you should have gone out of your way. I don't know. I'm I'm... I'm not going to make that call. You you could pick on the strippers for for being, uh, you know, poor representation uh, of women. You could also pick on the strippers for being uh, unnecessary to the story. They just come in and cause Jesse to have to wait. And so it's it's again like I was saying about Lou, where it's like putting a thing where you have to wait with the character and show that this is a more realistic world where there are boring parts, and so Jesse just has to suffer through 
you know, standing outside for two hours or something uh, until they're gone. Well, it gives him time to have another flashback. Right. It, it does that. To the scene where, um, where Neil is setting up the track that he is chained to. Um, and, and, you know, gives a real, I think a visual metaphor for Jesse's plight in a way. I think we're really meant to read into that, but also see it as just a very specific kind of torment that, uh, Kenny, the, the creepy white supremacist, who was another returning character, the guy with the slick back hair and the mustache, um, you know, that you get a real sense of what the torment, what the day-to-day treatment was like and how, again, how broken down he must have been. But it also means that Neil saw this form of Jesse and must have felt bad for the guy. And so must have felt some kind of something about having witnessed that, you know, and having been a part of that. Right. And maybe that, as well as being high on cocaine, contributes to his decision to uh, challenge Jesse to a Wild West-style shootout quick draw competition. Right. But I mean, Jesse at this point remembers the guy being there at that moment. So he can see that guy as having been uniquely cruel, maybe that he witnessed that and didn't do anything about it. Do you think Jesse was really trying to break away at that moment? Like what would it have, what, what did he expect to happen if he did break away? He knew that they would just put him right back on. Right. So it would not be in his interest to try as artist to break the contraption. He should, he should fake it. But he didn't seem to be faking it. I just thought that was an interesting moment. Like, it's another sign that he just was not feeling like a human with his own choices to make at that point. Right. I think all he's doing is trying to follow orders uh, because he's so broken down. But I was worried. I mean, (laughs) running and then being stopped by a cord like that, I was kind of worried for the, I don't know if Jesse did it himself or if they had a stuntman, but I was like, boy, you could really mess up your spine. Don't do that. I don't know how real that was. Seems like you could hurt the heck out of yourself. Well, that's why I asked about how hard he was trying, because it seemed like he was trying enough to throw himself up in the air. But it seemed to me that if you were doing that, yeah, you'd be jerking your system. and Right. It seems like even the stuntman would be in danger. But it did set up where that, like, that kind of, again, it's just like the thing with uh, Todd's money. It instantly, it, like, inserts the memory of what Neil represents to Jesse um, right before we see the moment where he goes in there prepared to kill him if he has to. I don't know. That just showed some moxie, you know, that he he wasn't going in there suicidally at all. He was going in there with the intention of surviving. And I think that's that's significant for this character. Yeah. That it was, he the intention was to win. Right. And it came out as a big badass action scene where he gets the better of everybody and gets away and blows the place up, which you need an explosion for the, for the trailer. And so they, they got that in. But do you think that running back and forth on a track was meant to be kind of a metaphor for uh, Jesse's predicament in general, that he's kind of stuck in a rut? Because there was another line earlier that was similar that, that worked in the situation as, a, as part of the movie, but that felt like it was a commentary on Jesse. And it's when um, he was helping Todd move the shell for the El Camino. Todd said, um, just in reference to carrying the thing, two, two men carrying a big thing like that, he said, what are you better at, going forwards or backwards? And Jesse doesn't say anything. And then Todd says, well, let's just go sideways together for a while. So I feel like that line and the idea of him going back and forth on a track, these are things that are sort of like Vince Gilligan being very clever and saying this is a visual representation of the situation Jesse's in. He's kind of stuck, as he always has been, between a rock and a hard place on this show. Do you think I'm thinking too much about it, or do you think that Vince Gilligan probably thinks just as much, if not more, about these things? Uh, He seems to think an awful lot about things, but I do think that what you just said could very well be things that he didn't think about that you hit upon uh, 
that are just, it's, you know, you make good points, salient points, but I, I don't know that he thought of that. Sometimes a phrasing is sort of telltale that, that it's meant to call attention to itself and saying, what are you better at going forwards or backwards? Just on yeah. the page. That is not a line about moving a, a, a car shell. That is a, uh, um, a line about developing. It could be, but I also could believe that, you know, when he moved a couch two days before he uh, wrote that, that his friend just said that. And he thought, that's a good, goofy thing to have come out of somebody's mouth when this is happening. Those two things felt obvious to me, and I started looking for them elsewhere in the in the story, just moments where it's about being the person to make your own choice and, and not look to anyone, so that at the end of this movie, even though he is going with Mike's idea of Alaska, he's he's sort of developed his own fresh start that is all about what Jesse is able to pull off in this last part of the story. Well, and, the very, and that connects perfectly to the very final flashback of his girlfriend, saying, uh, instead of going where the universe takes you, uh, it's better to make those decisions for yourself, right? Which is an interesting use of universe. You and I have talked about that, the sort of quasi-religious way that people use the term universe. Right. I think the universe is telling me something. It's like someone who would never say God, uh, but will just replace any statement about God with the word the universe. Right. And I think a lot of people will accept it in a sort of secular thinking kind of way, which is kind of funny. Uh, you know, it's like one of those things where you, you, even if you don't think you're spiritual, you probably still have some superstition about something controlling things or if this was meant to be or whatever it is. Right. But uh, I thought her use of universe in that case sounded a lot like that, uh, that idea of, you know, talking about it like it's some force that, that exerts its will on you. Right. You'd say, I used to think that was a good idea, but now I've decided there are times when I need to make a conscious decision and go hard at that. And then we go back to his, his face, uh, looking, reflecting on that and saying, now I've... I've decided where I'm going, and this is where I'm going. I, I think we kind of glossed over the shootout scene just a little bit, and there were a couple things I wanted to yeah. bring up about that. So let's double back a tiny bit and talk about the moment where the dancers leave, and that kind of phase of the evening ends, and it's just Neil and Casey and their weird gang of redheaded miscreants <laughs> that hang mm-hmm. out. Again, these are, like I was saying before, these are kind of low-level criminals. They were sort of just guys who at this point, I guess, were having a, a fun Saturday night or something. Um but definitely not guys who have a big plan or who have anything except for the fact that they've got money. And uh, and Jesse knows he needs that cash. Yeah. So, yeah, I like the way he came in and it suddenly became like a Western. Yeah. It was very uh, gunfighter-ish, the way that they, not just the way they squared off, but also the way he walked into kind of enemy territory. Yeah. Clearly ready to pull his gun and kind of playing them. And I guess we can chalk that up as another Walter White moment that he walked in with some form of a plan and that he had the concealed gun. Um, and he knew he was going to maybe goad this guy into some kind of a contest. But I think Jesse went in there hoping he could just get the, the 1800 he needed and, and walk out. Yeah. Ideally he would, the guy would have just gave it to him just cause he asked and cause it's not that much money in the grand scheme, but that didn't work out. And then the shootout got so crazy that there was a lot of shooting with no hitting, like both sides uh, missing, missing, missing. How did you feel about that? I liked it a lot, that there was, like, bad aim. Well, I mean, I feel like that's probably realistic. It very well happened. But I don't know. I've never been in a shootout. 
they were pretty close together. So it, it did seem pretty crazy that there wouldn't be more hits. But they were both moving. Casey was kind of moving across the room, trying not to get shot. And I don't think we've ever seen any indication that Jesse is necessarily a crack shot. But I did think it stood out as kind of comical. Like you were meant to think this is funny that these two guys keep missing each other, you know. Right. The uncaring universe at that moment is actually somehow making this magical armor possible for Jesse. Right. Because he didn't even get grazed. I think Casey ultimately became like a comic character for that reason. That when he finally does stand up and have his big moment, he's just not there. He doesn't have the skill to, uh, to, to get Jesse. Right. There was a great moment with Casey and Neil earlier in the scene uh, where Neil stares Casey down. Oh, yeah. That was hardcore. You just get up in somebody's face so close until they just have to be totally cowed and look away. Well, you're just calling. It's your buddy. So, you know, you don't need to do this. And he doesn't want you to do this. And he, he would back off maybe before you made it that embarrassing for him. Right. But it was just like a final way to shut Casey up yeah. on Neil's part. Because for whatever villainy he might be guilty of, he did seem to have this awareness that he needed to listen to Jesse because he knew the truth. At least some level of the truth of what he had been through. Right. It was kind of uh, funny that uh, Jesse, because of the gun being fired from within his pocket, his his jacket was on fire and he didn't even notice. And the guy had to tell him. You're on fire. Right. That's a nice favor for somebody to do for you on their way out as you, after you've, uh, you know, taken their driver's license and told them to run home. Well, I mean, that that ending of that scene with him patting out the fire and then obviously he sets this bomb, more or less, by by rigging up the, the gas tanks in the in the welding shop. And as he leaves and the explosion occurs, it felt like up to that moment, that scene had already felt very Heisenberg for me, but that was sort of cinching the deal, that that was like his most Heisenberg moment is like, you know, walking out as the place blows up. Right. And I think it was meant to make us think that because the next flashback we get is the scene with Walt. And I thought that revealing where we were in the timeline was kind of cool there. I, I pegged that as somewhere in like season two of the show. It felt very early in, in their relationship. Walt was still nebbishy and had not yet embraced the character of Heisenberg yet. Right. They still had the RV and Walt still doesn't know like, how are we going to distribute all this stuff? We've got so much. And so, yeah, they're they're having their early discussions. Now, I took a couple of real strong indications of what that scene was there for, what it meant outside of just how neat it is that you can flash back and show us Walt again. What did you see as the point of that scene outside of just, and here's the inevitable possible Walt cameo? Well, I do think that it is mainly that. It is mainly like, we got to give them what they want. You know, it's like, we're we're having fun here. We're going to see a bunch of more Breaking Bad it's an encore. It's it's like a a band on stage coming out for their encore, and that's when they play their hit, you know? So here we've come back for this movie, and we got to put Walt in it. So that's the main thing. But they made a perfectly nice scene, and yeah, you could you could make some important inferences out of it, uh, but I don't know that I do. Uh, uh, but what he advised him that, you know, you've got a smart business head. You could... You could uh, you could have, you know, success. You could go to college. And uh, uh, so, you know, maybe that leads into what we can think about what uh, what Jesse's going to do in Alaska. He's he's going to be uh, an okay small businessman who's a moneymaker or something like that. Uh, but I don't know that I even put that much stock in it. I think it was really mainly just the fun of, of seeing Walt and going back in time. I think there was maybe a checklist 
that that is one of the things they could check off is, oh, here's how we can get Walt into this. But to me, it feels so unnecessary that if you are going to do it, you have to do it with some intention. Walt is kind of a non-entity in a way to Jesse now that as a father figure, he was kind of a bust. And I think what this scene does is point out why in a very subtle way. Um, because it's not a huge momentous thing. It's mm-hmm. just, a, you might even accuse it of being a very small moment, you know? Very normal for them. But I think what we got from that scene was that Walt wanted to dispense fatherly advice that might be based on something real. Jesse's smarter than he maybe gives himself credit for. Right. Um, but he couches it in this condescending way that supposes that Jesse didn't graduate high school, which he knew that he did. I believe that he knew that he did already. It had been stated at some point. You know, I don't think he thought that he had flunked out. <laughs> he just forgot. Um, he just was not thinking about it. He just completely it. flaked. He just thought of this guy as the type of guy who didn't graduate high school. Which means that he never really paid that much attention to Jesse and didn't file him away because we know Walt has a capacity, a mind for facts. You right. know? So he, he, he just didn't file away the essential information about Jesse, which just proves that if he is to be a father figure, he is one who doesn't really know the basic details of this guy and who like uh, almost, you could say, doesn't care. But what I think it's even more insidious, which is like, he thinks he's caring. He thinks he's a good influence on this kid. Yeah. And he's doing something good for this kid. <laughs> but he's really just kind of using him like a pawn, you know? Yeah. And so I think that, and the way Jesse reacted to that was very funny. When he said, <laughs> um, you know, I totally graduated high school, dick. <laughs> like you great... were standing there watching me, you know, or whatever. And if you want to believe that Walt never really paid that much attention to him, what he says next is another thing that's like, here's a moment where giving him advice, and maybe that's useful to say you could apply yourself to a college and you could go further in this more conventional sense than you might be thinking for yourself. But then what he says to him, again, where he could say something useful, what he says is something utterly useless, which is totally making it about himself. He says, you're lucky you didn't have to wait your whole life to do something special. Um, Meaning that he only, Walt, only feels like now he's doing something very special when he's doing this meth thing, you know? Yeah. Whereas Jesse has the opportunity to get started much younger on something crazy like that. And it's like that's advice that Jesse can't really use because he is, even though he's kind of young and dumb, he still sees Walt for what he is on a certain level. And he's kind of considering the source in that moment. So it felt to me like... Of a, a, a failed attempt at like being fatherly, followed with making it about him again, and it really made me think as a dad to remember, as I often think, like you have to be careful that you're not just thinking out loud at your kid all the time. You know, in that moment, Walt obviously made it about his bitterness that he's dying and that he's older, uh, rather than actually being invested in a conversation with Jesse. So I think that even though it seemed like a small moment, it does tell us what this movie was was driving home throughout, which is that. Jesse really didn't get much useful from the Walter White relationship. Anything that, you know, it was more destructive than, than constructive. Well, and it's a good comment on, on Breaking Bad. It's a, it's a good summation of that to uh, underline and define that Walter White, you know, felt full and happy and fulfilled when he started on this venture and that his whole life before that was like, I'm not really doing anything special. I'm trying and I'm not getting there. Yeah, being a husband, being a father, those things were not as gratifying. Um, Another thing that I think was noteworthy about that scene was if you were waiting for Jesse to say, like one of his trademark lines, like to say say something, comma, bitch. I love that when he finally did, it was over the salad bar. (laughs) Yeah. He, I don't know, it looked like he put a cherry tomato on top of it. Maybe that was all a fruit salad, but it looked to me like it might have been a cherry tomato yeah. on top of just a pile of stuff. Right. And he said, yeah, bitch. 
Vince Gilligan knew he, he has to get the catchphrase in there somewhere. Yeah. But let's make it a totally uncool moment. Right. <laughs> There's really not much to talk about now except that that one brief scene that we've already kind of touched on, which is happening at the at the border where um, where Ed says goodbye to Jesse, and we we get the identity test, the quiz that you yep. have to get to make sure that you know these weird random facts about this fake identity, and we find out his name is Mr. Driscoll now. But outside of that, if this is the last time we see him, it was very much a um, just a do-over, like I mentioned earlier. It's like he's still driving off, but now instead of being distraught, he is... He is settled and peaceful, and we can argue maybe in the clear in a way that we've never seen him be before. Totally, yeah. It's a and it was just a nice echo to have that shot look like the same shot, except that he's looking, looking forward into the future and looking hopeful, and looking like I'm going to be okay. So, should this be the last time we see him? Do you think? Do you think that was it? And yeah, it, I mean, yeah. If you were ever going to do more with this character. It would need to be a starting over series like Better Call Saul, where you would say, we're starting a new thing, and it takes place 10 years later, and it's what happens with Jesse when he gets into this new and different life. Uh, But I'm not yearning for that, and so I think it's better to, to leave him alone forever. Well, as we were both saying that we weren't necessarily yearning for this, but it turned out quite nice. So I would think that if they do something, I will enjoy it, and I will probably get excited if I hear anything. Or, like I said, uh, Badger's adventure on his way to take the car down to the Mexican border uh, could be uh, highly complicated, exciting, or or maybe nothing in particular happens, but make it a two-hour movie out of it anyway. And there's a lot of, you know, stopping at, at rest stops and making small talk with people. He has flashbacks. Times he, <laughs> he has flashbacks from about video games. <laughs> and that time, yeah, that one talk he had with Walt that time and uh, stuff like that. I guess if we do close the book on, on Jesse Pinkman right now, that would be that would be just fine. We did find out his middle name. Did we know it was Bruce before this? I didn't. But Jesse Bruce Pinkman, his name came up on the on the screen at one point. Yeah, no, I didn't know. That was the big reveal, actually, of this. <laughs> That's the main thing we got out of it. I gotta go get something to drink. Do you need anything? I'm gonna hit the vending machine down the hall. Well, we're just—I mean, just we're—we're we're at the end of the show, so let's just <sighs> end the show and then go. I've already got my face on. All right. Well, there he goes. Yep. He could have at least hit pause on the machine. Anyway, we'll just let it run. Whatever. Oh God. I don't like the idea of answering a, a phone in a hotel room. God, I... Well, all right. Hello? Hello, Chris. <gasps> I'm very glad I reached you while John was out. What? Oh my God, it's the guy. You're surprised, aren't you? Yes, I can't believe you're alive. Well, I mean, you should be surprised for several reasons. Uh-huh. I mean, you're alive and we thought you were dead. Okay, so there's that. Right, that's one. And... And how did I know where you were? That That's true, too. I, yes, we're on the run. You shouldn't know where we are. That's great. I've done a great job. But I'm, I'm still... It's brilliant. You know, impressed that you're not dead. How did I know John was out of the room? You know, that's another reason to be surprised. Yes, that is. a. It's weird upon weird. So, uh, I mean, congratulations that you're alive. I guess I'm glad because this means we didn't kill a guy and we don't really... 
need to be on the run anymore un- uh, unless you're... I mean, how are you? I mean, I pinched your ankle. Right. I'm aware of that, so I can't complain too much, but you did you did punch my wrist. Your wrist. Well, you, I mean, you really went down, whatever happened. You, you, you were out of it. I have an instinct when I have that kind of pain, like I, I go limp. I just fall to the ground and I play dead. That's one way to do it, I guess. But uh, anyway, so wh- where are you? What do you want? Well, I have been surveilling you this entire time, and I finally was inspired when I heard your passable, perhaps, discussion of uh, El Camino. I thought these guys have, they've suffered enough. It's time for them to come home. You've been listening in on us this whole time. The whole time. How do you do that? I have my ways. I've got access to state-of-the-art surveillance technology, and I really don't want to see more of it than that. But I did rub little nanobots all over your clothes when we fought. What? And I know you haven't been wearing different clothes. For some reason, you've worn the same clothes. Something that two people that think they're on the run might not need to do. Well, we've been washing our underwear and socks, so it's not that bad. Anyway, my point is, I am willing to let this all end. I won't press charges. You're not going to—we should be the one pressing charges. You, You cut our power and broke in the house and tried to beat us up. I have a proposition. Hmm. Something that I think works out well for both parties. No charges pressed. You can come home. You can resume your normal lives. Save money on all those hotel rooms. It's a win-win. Huh. It is running into money. What, what, what kind of proposition? What are you talking about? Well, this gets into why I caught you while John is out of the room. Because I think you're the more reasonable of the two of you, and you might be able to sell him on this. Oh, thank you. But it's not what I would call an on-mic proposition if you catch my drift mr garrison uh well it kind of worries me uh, sounds like some kind of weird sex thing or something but not I, the kind of thing you talk about that's for public consumption if you know what i mean okay i i that still could cover a lot of different things so i don't know what you mean but i'll agree we will stop recording the podcast and then you and i will talk about it uh but uh uh, that being the case even though john's not back i don't think he had anything uh uh, important to add we talked about pretty much every scene in the whole movie so uh i guess uh i guess i'll end the podcast uh what do we what do we usually say when we're when we're done uh search on or you know whatever uh see you guys next time hot talk Sharing the night